Church. You know, Jennifer is my savior because tradition would prove that um, I forgot to do that again in the 8:30 service. I've got like a really good track record. Well, we are finally back to the letter to the Hebrews. It has been a long time away. Um, maybe some of you just started coming and, and you missed the rest of the letter. I don't know. We uh, we had spent majority of the year going through the letter to the Hebrews and we've we've had a little hiatus from it. And we're returning back to it this morning in Hebrews chapter 10. And I think it's worthwhile to just spend a moment pausing on, on where we've been so we can have focus to think about where we're going from here on out. And we, we've, we've dealt with themes week in and week out in the book of Hebrews, focusing on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. How Jesus is more powerful than the angels. He is more powerful in His word, more authoritative than Moses. He is God Himself bringing God's Word to us. We've, we've talked about the atonement that Christ engendered. We've talked about the necessity for Him to die so that those who believe in Him could have life. We've talked about the reason He died, the way He died, and the way that we can follow Him and appropriate that death. And, and now we're back to the last couple chapters cruising along to the writer's conclusion. Let's start for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you yet again that you are a God who reveals himself. That you are not a God who leaves us wondering who you are or what your will is, but that you are a God who's revealed himself through your word, through Christ, through creation even. And God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the sun shining. We thank you for the birds singing. We thank you for the reminder that the spring around us gives us of the work of regeneration you can work in the life of he who believes. God, we thank you for um, this place to gather in your name, God, and we pray that you would speak to us this morning afresh, that you would meet us by your Spirit, that you reveal yourself in deeper ways, and that you would uh, beckon us on towards the lives of increased faith. We ask all in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, again, before we go through the text that we're principally focusing on this morning, I want to step back just a little bit and, and reread the text that we left off on to kind of give ourselves a little perspective. So if you want to open up with me to Hebrews chapter 10, last time we, we met and talked about Hebrews, we were on verse 19. So Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the faith we profess, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, you can remember, we have a text here that's discussing the assurance 
that a Christian can have in entering the presence of God by this new and living way brought about through the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, it's a passing strange thought when you think of it that people like you and me could walk with confidence into the presence of God, shining in His glory, with a million angels praising His name because of this living way. And, and, and that's that, the, the sense I think the text is capturing. This assurance, this confidence, this joy that followers of Jesus and Christ are supposed to have because of what God did. And now, let's go through the text for this morning that directly follows that and on the surface is a very different ring to it. Verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I shall repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those two, it seems odd that those two sections of Scripture are right next to each other, doesn't it? You know, we've, we've, we have this one text that speaks about things that I feel a lot more excited about, personally. Confidence and assurance and joy and this great new living way that Christ has made. And, and then right after that, we go into this text that talks about raging fire and judgment and it being a dreadful, scary thing to fall in God's hand. And, and we're saying, well, this must be like a different like solar system. What is going on here? You know, I grew up in a, uh, the house I grew up in was a split-level home. You know, those where, you know, you can have one house and the house is kind of, each floor is subdivided. So, you know, half the house is on one level and then you, you walk up or down a couple stairs and you get to another level. You know, you can have a, you know, split-level ranch or a split-level colonial. And is, growing up as a kid, it was great because... Uh, you know, my brother and I, our bedrooms were on one level. And then you had to walk up a few steps to get to my parents' bedroom. And that provided a sense of isolation and security that as a young teenager, who was very good, yes, very good, I really enjoyed having. I really enjoyed having that separation and that feeling of, okay, they're way over there and I'm way over here. Now, reality, they were 10 feet away. They were just on the other side of that wall. It's not like they had a different wing or lived in, a, you know, I lived in the guest house. Like, they were right there. They probably still heard what was going on. They probably still knew what was going on. But because there was those four or five steps, I felt like, I'm over here, they're over there, okay. And I want to submit to you this morning that this text, more than talking about like two different houses or two different states or these two, again, on the surface, disparate, themes are actually very close. They're actually close just like I was close to my parents, whether I realize it or not. That, those few steps up provided the appearance of separation when in reality there was no separation at all. 
And so as we try to get the message of this text this morning, what I'd like to do is just kind of walk down the steps from Hebrews 25 into the, the six verses for this morning. And, and each step that we're going to walk down is going to kind of be a question we're going to ask of the text in order to try to understand God's Word to us this morning. So we're going to ask five questions. What, who, why, how, and where? What, who, why, how, and where are the questions we're going to ask as we try to unfold what's going on and, and hear God's Word to us? Question number one, what? What is deliberate sin? If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. It's the kind of verse that leaves us a little uneasy, I think. If it, if it doesn't leave us uneasy, then I think we've already like zoned out and, and lost the matter. Judgment and fearful expectation, fire, these are sobering themes. And it's kind of hard because, we, we, again, we just had this one verse talking about believers having assurance and confidence as they approach the end. And now here we we're, we're get this picture of people that are being told the assurance they should have is of fire and of judgment. And, and we're left with the question, well, what do we really have to expect what, what's going on here? What is deliberate sin? I think that's the, the question that unlocks this passage. Notice that the writer is not simply talking about believers who sin. He uses the phrase, deliberately keep on sinning. Very specific. Um, he doesn't say believers who stumble, who fall, who are trying to do what's right, but they, you know, they fall, they scratch their knees in some kind of sin. He says, Deliberately keep on sinning. And um, I'm not going to you know, try to make a case that believers uh, continue to sin. I think it's pretty obvious. I look at my life. Any of you that know me, you look at my life. Um, if you're curious, look at Paul, second portion of Romans, chapter 7. He makes it quite clear that believers continue to sin. So what's the writer talking about here this morning? You know, the scripture makes a distinction between kinds of sin, particularly in the Old Testament. As we read through the Old Testament, we hear a discussion of deliberate or defiant. Uh, one translation, I think, says high-handed or heavy-handed sins. And then we have what's called unintentional sins. And, and they're dealt with very differently. Uh, example, Numbers uh, chapter 17 says, But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, and that person must be cut off from his people because he has despised the Lord's work and broken his commands, that person must surely be cut off, for his guilt remains on him. You know, here we've got this person, they are, they're in their car, and they're going down the highway of sin. And they're going down the road that they know they shouldn't be going down to the destination they shouldn't be going, and, and, and they're just going full speed ahead. And, and they see signs popping up. They see a sign popping up, you know, an orange one, a yellow one, a red one, saying, danger, warning, don't go down that road. And, and they know that, you know, God is the one that, you know, put those signs there to say, that's not what I want you to do. Turn around. And yet, instead of turning around, they get a big smile on their face. They 
put it in the fifth gear, put the pedal to the floor, and they just go. It's a person that knows that the way they're going is wrong, that knows that it is contrary to God's will, but it defies His will and does it anyway. And the text tells us that their guilt still remains on us, on them. Quite similarly, perhaps you noted, to the Hebrews 10 verse that says, the person who goes on um, continuing to sin deliberately, their guilt remains on them and, uh, as, because they blaspheme the Lord. So we're not just talking about any old sin here. The writer is talking about something very specific. When he uses this phrase, deliberately keep on sinning, he's talking about the person that has heard God's will, that knows God's will, that knows what they're doing is wrong, and who intentionally, ongoingly, deliberately, and defiantly says, I'm going to disobey it. I don't care. Who? Who is the author talking about? A lot of us, we approach difficult texts like this in Hebrews. There's a even a category of them called the warning passages. Hebrews 4, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10. And one of the first questions a lot of people start to ask is, who's, who are we talking about? Are we talking about Christians? Are we talking about you know, people that, that are not Christians? Who is this? Because I want to know, does this apply to me or not? And once I know if it applies to me or not, I, I can move on. But I need to know. And uh, it, it says later, it says in the verse, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? Who is that person we're talking about? On folks on uh, verse 29 says, who, who is sanctified. It describes the person as being sanctified. And this is confusing for us. Because a lot of times, if, if, if you have any familiarity with the Scriptures, you hear a word like sanctified, and that sounds like a very Christian-y kind of word that we think, you know, must apply to Christians. And without getting too technical, I want to note a distinction this morning. There is a theological use of the word sanctified, and there is a biblical use of the word sanctified. There's a way we talk about it theologically, and there's a way we see it used at times in the Word of God. And theologically, you know, when we think of sanctification, we think of that process by which you know, God's Spirit enters the believer and you continue to put to death your will, your desires, your actions, and become more the man or the woman that He created you to be. It's the process by which you say, I have less pride, envy, selfishness, greed, lust, immorality in me by the power of the Spirit. I am casting that aside and instead what characterizes me more is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. It's the process by which the believer becomes less of who they were born and more of who God wants them to be and more like Jesus Christ. Biblically, however, we at times see the word used quite differently because there you've, you've got to be a Christian. Because if you're not a Christian, you don't want to follow Jesus anyway. And if you're not a Christian, you don't have the Holy Spirit. But here, and in this text, we see it used a little differently. Flip over with me to um, just one chapter earlier, to Hebrews 9. Great way to see, if we're trying to, when we're trying to define our terms as we're reading Scripture, it's great to look at other examples of how the word is used 
particularly within whatever book or letter we're reading by the same author. And here in Hebrews 9, chapter 13, we read, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Notice what it says and notice what it doesn't say in that depiction. Here is this person and they're going through this Old Testament ritual you know, where, where blood is you know, sprinkled on them and where they've, they've kind of made some kind of commitment to follow God or they've asked forgiveness of their sins and, and there is this ritual that takes place and yet it says they are outwardly clean. There, there has been this outward cleansing that has taken place, but it doesn't say anything about their heart. It doesn't say anything about any life change. It doesn't say anything about an inward cleansing. The word sanctify is used and it's only talking about the outward nature of things. We see a same example in, in the Old Testament. In Exodus 24, we see Moses there with the nation of Israel. They're before Mount Sinai. Moses comes down. It says that he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They're, they're hearing the word of God. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And notice this, Moses then took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. We see this same idea. These people, they are exposed to the Word of God, to the will of God. They say, hey, we're going to obey it. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that about four chapters later, at this point Moses is up on the mountain with God, and the, the rest of the people are down there, and they create this golden calf, and they start worshiping it and sacrificing to it and marching around and having a big party and committing you know, the grossest form of apostasy. Four chapters earlier, they heard the word and they said, we're going to obey it. Four chapters earlier, they were outwardly sanctified. Yet then we see that there were two camps. That the, those that were inwardly sanctified and those that it was just an outward thing. One more text. In, uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians 7, we hear um, about the unbelieving husband or wife that is sanctified by their believing spouse. And that's always been a weird text for me, honestly. How is this unbeliever sanctified by their believing spouse? Because clearly they're not saved, because then they wouldn't be called an unbeliever and so on and so forth. So how are they sanctified by their believing spouse? They are in the presence, in a broad sense, of the believing community. They are exposed to the Word of God through their relationship to one of God's sons or daughters. They are exposed to the character of God through their relationship to one of God's sons or daughters. And there's this, and again, in a very broad sense, where they are exposed to God through them. Very much like the Israelites, there at Mount Sinai, at the foot of it, are exposed to the Word of God, are exposed to the character of God, and yet some choose to follow Him and some do not, even though they all go through the same motions. They all say, we will obey. And some of them act on it and some of them don't. And so from a biblical perspective, this word sanctify means an exposure to the truths of God, to the character of God. Sometimes accompanying it is, is, a, ver, is a ritual or you know, a, a we will obey or a 
some, some verbal outward sense of, yeah, we assent to that, we agree to that, but it doesn't necessarily imply heart change or life change or inward commitment that is necessary to truly become a follower of Christ. And so when we ask ourselves, who is the writer talking to? He's talking to everyone. Because the fact of the matter is, anyone who comes into a church, Lord willing, you know, um, not every church in America today, sadly, but you come to a church, you're being exposed to the Word of God. You're being exposed to some of the people of God. And there's a sense in which you are outwardly perhaps sanctified by that, by hearing the songs and singing the songs that display God's character and His glory, by hearing His Word preached, by coming to know who He is. But we can have two different camps of people. Those who are sanctified outwardly and see it, hear it, even maybe taste it, and those who respond and are sanctified inwardly towards it. Third question, why? Why does Hebrews use this kind of language? You know, a lot of times when we read these passages in Hebrews, very much like the one Jeremy preached on in Hebrews 6, we get all bent out of shape and say, are we talking about Christians or not? Because if we're not, I just want to move on. And, and we want to put these passages in a box, and we want to put, I think, ourselves in a box. And when we do that, I think we, we ignore and we lose the power of what the writer is trying to convey to us. Why does he write this way? He writes this way because he doesn't, he's writing to these different congregations throughout all the known world at the time, many of which he's never been to. So he's writing knowing that people are going to hear this message and he's not going to know whether they're Christians or not. And so he, he knows that, yeah, in each synagogue, in each church that hears this, there are going to be some that have responded and some who haven't. And so he can speak about you know, this assurance and this confidence with which we can enter God's presence if we have believed. But he doesn't know that everybody's living on, on that, that side. So he's got to walk down a few stairs and say, hey, maybe you haven't. You're among the redeemed, but I don't know that you are redeemed. So, so let me phrase to you all the greatness and the glory and the wonder and the beauty that accompanies a new life in Christ and the assurance and the confidence and the joy that that should give you. But, hey, let me make sure you've really taken hold of it because if you haven't, you are in a scary situation that I don't want you to stay in, that I don't want you to live in. You, it's so possible, it is so easy, like those Israelites at Mount Sinai, to hear it, to look at it, to say we will obey. It is so easy for us to sing songs, you know, to, to, to put money in an offering plate, to stand up when we've got to stand up, sit down when we've got to sit down. It is so easy for us to listen attentively. But, you know, some of us, I mean, you know, a good friend of mine, he said, the only reason he came to church for years was because he really liked the girl that he was dating. And he was like, all right, if I go to church with her, she'll date me. And so he went. He was in the community of the redeemed. He would sing. He would listen. He'd go out to lunch afterwards and talk about the sermon. And in his mind, he, he oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. He was in the community of the redeemed, even though maybe he, he wasn't really there. It is so possible for us to be so close and yet so far. 
And the writer here is trying to jolt us. He's trying intentionally to scare us and say, I don't know where you're at. You better make sure. Which side of the house, which, which side of those five steps are you on? Are you, yeah, you may be thinking, I'm here and it's great and I like this living way and I like the assurance it gives, but have you really walked through it or are you still just looking up the stairs through the doorway? Where are you? He says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living, the living God. God means business. There is going to be no second sacrifice for sins. There's going to be no new death of Christ for you know, those of us that didn't get it the first time. There's going to be no new opportunity. The time has come. The blood of Christ has already been spilled and God in heaven is already awaiting to see how we are going to respond to it. But we can, we can say we will obey. But have we? Have we taken the step? Despite the outward sanctification that spending a Sunday morning in church may appear to bring us, have we taken the step to receive that inward sanctification He's talking about here that we need? And so I, I want you this morning to hear the cry of this writer. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To the believer, it is assurance and it is joy and it is peace. But to him who has been so close and kept waiting and waiting and waiting, it is so scary. Because you've been so close, but you are so far. How? How should this affect my life? Professor, uh, one of my professors from seminary, D.A. Carson, tells a great story about some time he had in French West Africa. And I don't know why. He was in French West Africa, like, learning German. I can't figure that out. But, um, so he's in French West Africa, and he's trying to learn his German, and he would meet frequently with a, another guy trying to learn his German, and they would talk to each other, you know, and kind of just practice their German until they got exhausted. And uh, then they'd kind of retreat back to French, which was a language each of them spoke very well. And over the course of time, he really gets to know this guy well. And they talk, and they get to know each other, and they share about their lives. And he finds out how this, this younger man, uh, his, he's married, his wife is in London, studying to become a doctor, and he's there in French West Africa learning German to um, go to Germany to engage in a doctoral program in engineering. And Carson gets kind of close to him, and one day the guy lets it out of the bag. He tells Carson how, yeah, once or twice a week he, he goes to the red light district of town and he solicits the services of a prostitute. Carson's kind of surprised. He gets to the place where he, he brings it right back around and says, hey, um, how would you feel if your wife did that? Thinking this is a really good way to tackle the question. The guy laughs. The guy says, oh, I'd kill her. You, you, you'd kill her? Really? Yeah. Well, that's a bit of a double standard, isn't, isn't it? He tells the guy, no. He says, not at all. Where I come from in Africa, a husband is free to sleep with as many women as he wants. But if a wife, the wife does that, she deserves to die. And Carson said, but, but you told me you were raised in a mission school. You told me you, you, you come from this Christian environment where you've received this knowledge of the truth. Do you really think that God, and, and that the, even the Bible, just has a double standard like that? The guy, said, he get, the guy responded with a bright smile. 
said it fancy in French in a way I won't try to replicate. He says, God, he says, oh, God is good. He's bound to forgive us. That's his job. Here was a man who had received the knowledge of the truth. Here was a man who was outwardly sanctified by walking among the community of the redeemed. Here's a man who clearly thought of himself in some sense as a Christian, knew of that living way, and he was, ha- and he was laying hold of the assurance it beckons, even though he never walked through the door. He was still sitting five steps down with the threat of judgment and of raging fire. But he didn't know that that is where he was. You know, one of the overarching themes of this book of Hebrews has been the superiority of Christ and the wonder at the death He died. And as wondrous and remarkable is the place that that death brings the believer at God's side. How horror. How horrible is the reality of those who hear it, know it, deliberately, defiantly reject it, and yet think they still have that assurance. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. We're not, we're not talking about two homes. We're talking about one glorious reality, the rejection of which flows into a very logical conclusion that's just ten feet away. John Calvin, I think, I think brings these thoughts together. together. He writes, The severity of God is indeed dreadful. But it is set forth for the purpose of inspiring terror. He cannot, however, be accused of cruelty. For as the death of Christ is the only remedy by which we can be delivered from death, are not they worthy who destroy as far as they can its virtue and benefit be worthy of despair? Where? Where are we in the camp? In that camp of God with the Israelites. In those two groupings, each exposed to the Word of God, each exposed to the character of God, each outwardly sanctified by being so near to the things of God, where are we in the camp? Are we able to lay hold of that assurance and confidence or are we able to lay hold of an assurance of dread at the thought of being in the hands of the living God because of our spurning, as the text uses, of that offer. Had the opportunity uh, a few months back, we went on this winter retreat for a youth group, and they did something new that I, I've never had done on a winter retreat. Each morning, they kind of have this, you know, leader devotional, they call it. And, you know, it was kind of neat because they, they, they even said, they said, we want to minister to the pastors and the leaders who are coming here and bringing these kids. And most camps don't do that. I was, I was pretty excited for the opportunity. And day one, it was a great, you know, lecture on. Uh, just the need for us to grow and, and how we can be better minister to teens. And then the second day, the guy spends like an hour and a half just preaching the gospel. And, and I was kind of surprised the first time. I'm like, I got up an hour and a half early <laughs> on a Sunday when I went to bed at about 3 a.m. to hear this guy tell me what I already know. You know what I mean? 
I hadn't had my coffee yet, I'm sorry. And, um, and he's going through this whole thing, and, and then he lets the ball drop. He says, you know what? Every year, we have groups come from evangelical churches, from churches that teach the Bible. Every year, leaders get saved. Every year, he goes, every year, youth pastors get saved. Pastors and leaders who every week, some of us in this room would be saying, oh yeah, we trust our kids or our grandkids to come to know Christ through. And yet every year, they can go to this camp. Those who are in the community, familiar with God, outwardly sanctified. There are people out there who are trying to talk to your kids about God when they don't even know Him. But they think they do. They think they do. So very close, yet so very far. Which side of the camp are you? Where's your confidence? There are clearly the same example. I am sure there are people that went to this camp, they had been baptized and made a profession of faith. They had taken communion for 20 years. They had maybe publicly given a testimony. But where were they? It is so easy to mistake where we are. You know, I think a lot of us by nature, we try to do whatever we need to do to excel in whichever arena we need to excel in and to be accepted in that arena. We, we do what we need to do at work in order to excel and be accepted there. We, we learn the rules of our family. Or if you, you, know, you get married and you, you kind of get a new family, you learn the rules of your new family and how you need to live to excel and be accepted in that family. And I think for many of us there's a temptation when we are among this broad community of faith that we learn what to say, what to think, and how to act in order to be accepted. Perhaps, perhaps we start out just doing it because we want to be accepted by our parents or our kids, and we say, okay, if I start thinking that and talking like that, if I go to a small group or I act as an usher, maybe I will be accepted and win their approval. And that's where it starts. And then all of a sudden you go down this rabbit hole where 30 years later, you're still not a believer, but now you're afraid to admit it. Because you're, you're like, I've led mission trips. I, I, I've given. I've led a Bible study. How can I possibly say I never really meant it? They'll cast me out. I'll be laughed at. I've come so far. How can, how can I let it out of the bag that I never got on the train? It's a temptation. This is a text for the entire church because it offers an opportunity to do what the Scriptures command us to do and to examine ourselves. It gives us an opportunity to test our faith. It gives us an opportunity to look back and say, God, you've outwardly sanctified me. You've revealed your character. You've revealed your will. Wow, where am I? Am I? Do I have that blessed assurance? Or should I tremble at the thought of being in your hand because I've been so close and yet so far? Where am I? And so we're going to do something a little different this morning. I'm not a sensationalist. I don't like things like this, but I'm going to do it for a change. We're going to, we're going to just have a moment of, of silence and reflection. And I think the text beckons a response. It beckons a response and an examination to say, which camp am I in? Is my life more characterized since the day I I claim to believe that I've been deliberately sinning and defying? Or since that day, would you look at my life and say, yeah, I've stumbled and failed, but I'm growing in my love for the Lord. 
I've grown in my love for His people. I've grown to reflect more His character than my own. Which, which would characterize you? So you can take a moment, you can keep your eyes open, you can keep your eyes closed, and whatever. Just ask God, God, where am I? I've been among the redeemed, but have I truly become redeemed? invite you to open up to the, your look at your worship folder after the last hymn. You'll see there's a prayer on that. And it's a, it's a prayer in a short amount of time I have fallen in love with that I think would be a great way for us to, to end this sermon. May, you know, and I'm going to read it. You can read it with me. Maybe it's the kind of thing that you're like, wow, and it just fully captures the assurance and the joy you've had for many years. And maybe it's the kind of prayer whose truths you're laying hold of for the first time. It's under the the title, Regeneration. O God of the highest heaven, occupy the throne of my heart. Take full possession and reign supreme. Lay low every rebel lust. Let no vile passion resist thy holy war. Manifest thy power and, and make me thine forever. Thou art worthy to be praised with my every breath. Loved with my every faculty of soul. Served with my every act of life. Thou hast loved me, espoused me, received me, purchased, washed, favored, clothed, adorned me when I was worthless, vile, soiled, polluted. No provocation can part me from Thy sympathy, for Thou hast drawn me with cords of love and dost forgive me daily, hourly. Oh, help me then to walk worthy of thy love, of my hopes and my vocation. Let me lay aside every sin admired by many. Help me to walk by thy side, lean on thy arm, hold converse with thee, that henceforth I may be salt of the earth and a blessing to all. May it be so for all of us. Amen. After that prayer, you'll find the words to when I survey the wondrous cross. Would you please stand and let's continue in our response.